When we concluded the last session, the people of God had been exiled from the Promised Land. They found themselves far away from where God had dwelt amongst them in the Holy of Holies in the Temple. Far away from where God had spoken to them through His prophets. Far away from where they enjoyed the privilege of being His people living in His land. And I wonder, have you ever found yourself far away from God? Far away from where you once heard His voice and experienced His presence? Let's open our Bibles to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to see what God does when His children are far away from Him. A number of years ago, I found myself in a real crisis. I had left my job at the publishing company where I worked to start my own media relations business from home when I had my son, Matt. And I was intent on proving to my publishing company clients and media contacts that I could be just as available and accomplish just as much as I did before. So I left a job I loved that made me feel important and competent. And I started working at home where I felt unimportant and incompetent, and it wasn't fun. <laughs> and then I started having health issues, and it started with bronchitis that seemed to morph into asthma, and there were other things. In fact, one day I told David that I thought I might need to go to a podiatrist to deal with some numbness in my toes, and he said, are you trying to go to every specialist there is within a six-month period of time? And he was right. I had been to the internist and the ENT and the urologist and the proctologist and the psychologist and the gynecologist and the pneumologist, and the truth is I wasn't getting any better. But I also knew that my issues weren't just physical. I had grown up in the church and gone to a Christian college and worked about eight years in Christian publishing at that point. And David and I were committed to the hilt at our church. But there was a problem. I was so far away from God. I wasn't talking to Him through prayer or listening to Him by reading His Word. And my great fear was that someone would ask me the question, what is God doing in your life right now? And that I would be caught. Now, of course, I would have come up with a good answer, talking about some publishing project I was working on or some theological topic I was interested in or some ministry at church I was busy with. But inside, I felt like a huge hypocrite. And the weight of that was crushing me. There had been so many times I had come up with some grand plan to discipline myself, to read my Bible, but those always fizzled out quickly. And I felt like a wall of stony silence and unconfessed sin had built up between God and me and I didn't know how to break it down or get through it. In fact, I wondered if God would really be interested in taking me back and allowing me to start all over again with Him. Maybe you know just what I mean. Maybe you are committed to the Hilt at Church, but you know that your heart lingers somewhere far away from God. Or maybe you have avoided the church or left the church thinking 
that it's just too much trouble and who needs it anyway. And now you find yourself not only having drifted away from the people who care about the state of your soul, but also having drifted away from the God you once knew. And perhaps you find inside you a longing to go home, to find something real with God, to start over with him again. That is where the people of God were in the books we will look at today. They were far away from the land where God had promised to dwell with them. Far away from the temple where they went to find forgiveness for sin. Far away from being all that they were meant to be. They were 500 miles east of Jerusalem in Babylon, in the heart of the world, in an environment that was designed to assimilate them. The Babylonian regime had brought them far away from home and mixed them with people from other conquered territories and even given them Babylonian names in place of their Hebrew names for the purpose that they would leave behind their old lives, their old language, their old ways, and their old God. But then a new regime came into power. The Persians overtook the Babylonians. And they had a completely different strategy when it came to conquered people and lands. Instead of exporting them, they allowed them to live in their own land where they were more likely to be productive and produce more tax revenue. So instead of forcing them to accept a new set of gods, they were happy to simply add the god of the conquered people to their own panoply of gods. And this is exactly what we find when we open the book of Ezra, which was once one book with Nehemiah. They really go together to give us the whole story of the return of the exiles. Ezra and Nehemiah tell us the story of the people of God coming home from Babylon to Jerusalem. In several waves over several decades, a remnant of the people who had left came home to start over, to start over in the land to start over in the temple, to start over with God, and to be the people that he had always intended for them to be. This story holds out hope to those of us who feel far away from God and want to go home and start over again with him. In it, we see that he will bring his people home. When we open to Ezra 1, and read about the new regime in Persia. We might think that we're reading about a human strategy at work, but we quickly realize a divine strategy is being carried out by this human king. God is at work to bring his people home. Look with me in Ezra 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled? 
Jeremiah was one of those prophets in Judah who had warned his people of the coming judgment of exile if they did not stop their evil ways. And of course, that's what happened. But Jeremiah also prophesied about what would happen years later, 70 years later. In Jeremiah 25, we read, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. Many years later, Jeremiah, who was in Babylon with the exiles, reminded them of this promise. In Jeremiah 29, 10-14, we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Ah, now we understand the context of this oft-quoted and honestly oft-misapplied verse. This in Jeremiah 29 was a specific promise given to a specific group of people in a specific historical situation. What did God's plans for them include and why would he need to assure them that his plans were for good? His plans included many more years of exile before getting to go home to Jerusalem. The years of enslavement ahead of them would certainly not seem like plans for welfare and not for evil. So we see that this is not a promise, that God has plans for the years of your life on earth that are going to fit your description of good. They may not be at all what you are hoping for. In fact, the people of God in Jeremiah's day were in exile for 70 years. 70 years is a lifetime. You may have a lifetime of not getting the things you hope for in the here and now of this world. The future and hope that God was setting before them and that he sets before you and me is that when we seek him, he will be findable. Notice from Jeremiah's prophecy the sense of what it is going to mean to go back to Jerusalem. Going back to Jerusalem means calling upon the Lord, coming to him, praying to him, seeking him, and finding him. Going back to Jerusalem is not just a geographical relocation. It is a personal transformation away from the world that wants to assimilate them and toward the city of God where God wants to sanctify them to himself. So back to Ezra 1, verse 5. 
then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So those exiles who were most zealous to return from Babylon to Jerusalem, those in whom God had stirred up a burning desire to worship God in the place God had promised to dwell, those people headed home. Chapter 2 of Ezra begins this way. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. And if you're like most people, you think, I think this is a chapter of the Bible I'm going to skip. I mean, who really needs to read all of these unpronounceable names? And why is this even in the Bible? Well, it's here so that we will know that these families going back to Jerusalem are the descendants of Abraham, the ones to whom God gave the promise of the land. These are the same families who left the land, the ones to whom God had made the promise that he would bring them back. But beyond the Israelite exiles who were returning to the land, there were those who were not descendants of Abraham who had joined themselves to God's people and wanted in on the promises of God. Ezra 6 describes those who celebrated the first Passover in the land, saying it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So just as we've seen that some Egyptians joined God's people who walked out of Egypt and Canaanites and Moabites such as Rahab and Ruth have become a part of God's people by forsaking their false gods and worshiping Yahweh alone. Now we see that God is still adding to the list of God's people, many people from throughout the lands conquered by the Persians. God has always been and always will be about the work of bringing people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. But there is something else we should see in this list that we might be tempted to skip over. We should see that God's people are not nameless, faceless people to him. God likes to keep lists of those who are his people because his people as a group matter to him, his people as Families matter to him, and his people as individuals matter to him. This list of people in Ezra 2 is actually just the first wave of people who left Babylon to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. We read in chapter 8 of Ezra about a second wave of people coming home from Babylon to Jerusalem. And eventually, 50,000 people returned, really a very small remnant of the estimated 2 million exiles who continued to live away from the land and were eventually assimilated into those people groups. The lists of God's people in Ezra and Nehemiah represent the people who were willing to leave Babylon and its familiarity and comforts to go home to the land where God had promised to dwell with them. To go from Babylon to Jerusalem is to go from being scattered to gathered, from alienated to accepted, from outcast to favored child. Is God stirring in your heart to come home from Babylon to Jerusalem, 
from far away from him to at home with him? So we see that God will bring his people home and he will also call his people to worship. The temple was a tangible demonstration of God dwelling in the midst of his people and it had been destroyed. For 70 years, there had been no sacrifices offered for sin. No priests carrying their concerns into God's presence. No blood being sprinkled. No incense being burned. No lamps being lit. No bread being placed and replaced on the table. And because of this, there had been no remedy for the remission of sin. No way for atonement to be made and the peace of promised forgiveness to be found. When God's people headed back to Jerusalem, they were sure to bring the priests and Levites and singers with them. They took all of the utensils that Nebuchadnezzar had stripped from the temple of Jerusalem and placed in the temple to his gods. And the first thing they did when they got to Jerusalem was to build an altar to offer sacrifices. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they began laying the foundation for rebuilding the temple. Clearly, the priority of those returning to Jerusalem was to restore the worship of God. The people of God were not merely going home to a land, but to the place where they had known and related to God. It was only a short time after they started building the foundation for the temple that the opposition began. Now there is always opposition to genuine worship. The people who had moved into and around Jerusalem while they had been exiled, they criticized and intimidated the returnees and frustrated their plans so that it took 20 years for the temple to be rebuilt and for the temple worship to be restored. But finally, that glad day came. We read about it in Ezra 6, verse 16. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The third thing we see is that he will build his city. When the book of Nehemiah opens, it takes our focus back to the place where hundreds of thousands of exiles were still living, including a man named Nehemiah, who had risen to the trusted position of cupbearer to the king of Persia. But evidently, though Nehemiah's whole life had been spent in Babylon, his heart was firmly planted in Jerusalem. One of his brothers, who had been to Jerusalem, came to see him, and Nehemiah wanted to know how those who had gone back and rebuilt the temple were doing. We read about this in Nehemiah 1.3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah couldn't just say, well, that's too bad, and go back to his wine tasting. 
these were his people. This was the city of his God. So we read in Nehemiah 1.4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The temple had been rebuilt, but without the wall, the city was still virtually defenseless. These were the walls around the place where God had promised to bring forth his forever rule, and they were in ruin, and the reality of it pierced Nehemiah to the core. Nehemiah was allowed to return to Jerusalem with the blessing of the king, and when he arrived, he discovered that even the grim description his brother had given to him did not fully capture the reality of the ruined city. Jerusalem was a fallen and charred heap of rubble. Giant stones that had once been embedded in the city's great wall lay half buried, now embedded in the earth, and the grass had grown tall around them, and the mortar that once held those stones together was now dust kicked up by his horse's hooves. By the light of the moon, Nehemiah surveyed the once glorious city. But Nehemiah saw it all through the lens of the promises of God. He looked at the stones and he saw them as a picture of the people of God broken down, needing to be reclaimed and restored. And so he gathered the priests, the nobles and the officials and those who were to do the work. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. All God's people gave themselves to the one thing, the rebuilding of the wall that the greatness and grandeur and glory of God might have visible place again. But no great work for God is done without its detractors, without facing opposition. Remember that ever since the Garden of Eden, the seed of the serpent has been set against the seed of the woman, seeking to defeat the purposes of God in the world. Sanballat and Tobiah, governors over the area surrounding Jerusalem, were displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So they hindered the rebuilding of the wall at every turn. Nehemiah heard his detractor saying, do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? They sent messengers to Nehemiah when he was working on the wall, asking him to come down and meet with them. But he sent messengers back to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. We read in Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In 52 days, no cranes, no cement trucks, Everyone made part of the work crew. It was clear not only to God's people, but to all of the surrounding peoples and nations who were watching, 
that God had brought his people home and he was at work in them and through them. The next thing we see is that God will speak to his people through his word. God had called his people to worship. He built and secured a city for them, a place where he could dwell with them. And now he wanted to speak to them through his word. Look in Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, Ezra was not a priest, but more of a trusted lay Bible teacher. And we can almost hear the people begin to chant for Ezra to bring out the book and begin to teach. They're saying, bring out the book, bring out the book. And then look what happens in verse three. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now get the picture of what is happening here. All the people, all the men and women and children who are old enough to understand have gathered to listen to Ezra read to them from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. From dawn until about noon, they listened to Ezra read. And then 12 Levites would move among the crowd explaining what Ezra had read, helping them to grasp the story of the curse in Genesis 3 and the promise of the seed of the woman, the promise made to Abraham and his coming to the very place where they were gathered to offer his son Isaac. The Levites went out into the crowd, helping them to understand the substitutionary sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus and the call to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, and might in Deuteronomy. They taught them about God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and through the Red Sea so that they might enter into the land he was giving them and enjoy him living in their midst. And how did they respond? Look at verse 6. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Recently, I was speaking at a women's conference, and before I got up to speak, a woman got up and recited the entire book of Colossians. But it wasn't really like a recitation. It was more like she became Paul and communicated the letter of Colossians. And when she was finished, the room erupted into applause. And if I had had the courage to do what I felt in my heart was the most appropriate thing to do, I would have fallen on my face to the ground in wonder and worship and submission just from hearing God's word. It has such power and authority, but I was too reserved, too concerned with how awkward it might be. You know, the Bible is not just dry history or the description of a religious system or a series of rules for living. It is God condescending to speak to us in human language. And when the voice of the living God speaks and we understand what he is saying, it blesses us and breaks us and brings us to our knees and even prostrate before him. 
At least it should. Oh, the joy of being undone by hearing the word of God and having it penetrate deep into your soul. Hearing God speak to them, it brought them to tears. It also strengthened them with the joy of the Lord so that they celebrated. It confronted them with their sin and called them to confession. But being confronted with their sin led to more than just confession. It called them to action. And the final thing we see in this story of Ezra and Nehemiah is God's commitment to set his people apart from the world. As they listened to the word of God, they heard God's repeated commands throughout their history to devote the Canaanites to destruction so that they would not intermarry with them and begin to worship their gods. They put that together with their history of intermarriage and idolatry that had forced them into exile. Look in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is a picture of costly obedience, of a rigorous response to God's command to be holy, set apart. And this can appear to us to actually be an ungodly thing, to divorce and send away foreign wives. And it can also be a bit confusing because we know that some foreign wives have been gladly welcomed in, such as a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab and a Moabite named Ruth. What we must understand is that this commanded separation was not a racial issue. It was a religious issue. The people of Ezra and Nehemiah's day are not being asked to separate themselves from foreign wives who have forsaken false gods and embraced the promises of the one true God. They're being told to separate themselves from foreign wives who have not forsaken their false gods, but who have brought their gods with their carved idols and deviant sexual practices into the marriage with them to be mixed with the worship of the one true God. To come home from Babylon to Jerusalem meant turning their back on the world and its idolatrous ways of worship to serve God alone. For them and for us, this requires rigorous self-examination, identifying and eliminating anything and everything that wants to woo us away from our worship of God alone. Now, when we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we are essentially at the end of Israel's Old Testament history. Yes, there are plenty of other books that follow Nehemiah in our Bibles in the Old Testament. They are the wisdom books and the prophetical books that were mostly written during the time covered in the history books. After the end of Nehemiah, there is no further biblical record of Israel's history until the story picks up again with the visit of an angel to a priest named Zechariah, who will become the father of John the Baptist. But here in Nehemiah, at the very end of the book and the end of the historical books, 
we discover that Nehemiah has had to go back to King Cyrus to live up to his commitment to him. And so he's gone from Jerusalem for a while after the wall was rebuilt. In Nehemiah 13, we read about Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem about a decade later. When he got there, he found that an Ammonite, Tobiah, had been given a place to work in the temple. He found that the people were not giving their offerings, and so the Levites were having to go out and work in the fields to be able to eat. He found that the people were treating the Sabbath like any other day of doing business. He found that sadly, once again, Jews had married women from the nations around them. In fact, as he walked through the city, he discovered that the children no longer spoke the language of Judah, but spoke the languages of their foreign mothers. Nehemiah's book ends with the prayer of his heart, which was, Remember me, O oh my God, for good. There's a sense when we read this of hopelessness and resignation to it. He's tried. <laughs> He has done everything he knew to do to protect and preserve and purify God's people, and it just wasn't enough. The temple that Zerubbabel had rebuilt was not enough to call the people to the kind of worship of which God is worthy. Ezra's teaching wasn't enough to keep them confessing their sin and celebrating God's goodness. And the wall that Nehemiah built couldn't keep out the compromise that was continually recontaminating God's people. Let's face it, it's been clear. Ever since that dark day in the garden, we are ruined by sin and in need of a restorer greater than Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah, we need one who has a heart that is broken over the broken down state of the people whom God loves and the place in which he intends to dwell. And that is the restorer that God has sent to us. Jesus left the palace of heaven and came to us so that he might reclaim us from the wreckage. He came to call us to true worship, not by reinstating burnt offerings in the temple, but by offering himself as the once for all sacrifice. Jesus, the living word, came to teach us what it means to obey God's commands. Jesus has thrown open the doors of the city of God and invited all who will turn their back on the Babylons of this world to come in. Jesus came on a building project to build his church, a church built not on a foundation of stone, but on the foundation of the rock-solid reality that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is building his church, not by climbing up on a wall in Jerusalem to work, but by being lifted up on a cross outside Jerusalem, where he accomplished his greatest work, a work that faced great opposition. In Mark 15, we read that those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. 
so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those who opposed Christ's work called for him to come down. But Jesus did not come down. We can almost hear him saying the words of Nehemiah. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And because he stayed there, accomplishing his redeeming work until he cried out, it is finished. You and I can live safely inside the walls of his city where no enemy will be able to bring us harm. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is building his church, not with fresh cut stones, but with charred and ruined stones. A church made up of people who have been ruined and scarred by sin. Joined by faith to him, we are transformed into living stones and built into a spiritual temple and a city in which God condescends to dwell by his spirits. Years ago, when I was so far away from God, not sure how to get home or if I'd be welcomed in, God brought me home to himself. It required me leaving where I was in the world with its priorities and perspective and I had to head full out in his direction to go where I could hear him speak to me through his word. I joined a Bible study that required rigorous accountability and work on my part. And as I studied his word, I heard his voice and I came under conviction and I repented and I took steps of costly obedience in his direction. And as the months and then years went by. God built a new foundation in my life that was solid. He renewed and rebuilt me. And the time came when I realized that I didn't live in fear of being exposed as a hypocrite anymore. I knew he was at work in me, teaching me, changing me, using me. And he is still at work in me, making me into a person in whom he delights to dwell by his spirit. If you find yourself far away from God today, won't you set out to come home? Don't wait any longer. You will not find an impenetrable wall, but open arms. He's not looking for perfect people who show no signs of being burned by this world. Jesus takes ruined stones, ruined lives, and makes them into the kind of place he intends to live forever.